The resurrection of Jesus is at one and the same time the most celebrated and most controversial event in all of history. In ancient paganism, and especially in Greek philosophy, the notion of a resurrected body was considered not just impossible, but repulsive. It's not just that they didn't think bodies could come back to life, it's that they didn't want that because bodies made of this matter are icky and dirty and bad. For ancient Greek philosophers like Plato, the body was a prison house for the soul. And if you offered them the option of being resurrected after death, they would not have taken it. They did not see resurrection as good news. Matter was bad in their view. The body was bad. But of course, scripture gives us a very different view of the world. It tells a very different story. In the biblical view, if there is no resurrection, there is no redemption and death wins. The only way to defeat death is with a resurrection from the dead. And that's why it is so important for us as Christians that it really happened. The gospel is all about defeating death. And that happens through bodily resurrection. The accounts in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians 15 affirm that Jesus was raised from the dead in the same body that was crucified. And in this way, he demonstrated he had won the great victory, not only in the spiritual realm, but in the material realm as well. The resurrection means Christ's victory is total and absolute. If Jesus is just a ghost today, if he only rose in spirit and not in body then his rule and his saving power are limited to the realm of the spirit. And that would mean the devil and death won the war in the material realm. But the whole point of the gospel is to announce the total creational cosmic victory that Jesus has won. Again, this is the very thing that the ancient Greeks and the Gnostics could not stand. They could not embrace the material world in this way. They saw man's problem as materiality rather than sin. The problem is your body. It is your physicalness. Irenaeus, the great church father in the second century, accused the Gnostics of his day of, quote, despising the workmanship of God. And that is exactly right. The resurrection is God's ultimate affirmation of the goodness of his own workmanship. It's God's ultimate affirmation of the goodness of your body and the whole physical creation. Yes, man's sin has marred God's physical creation, but there is nothing wrong with the physical or the material in itself, as C.S. Lewis was fond of saying. Of course God loves matter. He invented it. Of course he loves matter. He created it. Because Christ rose bodily, he has become Lord and Savior of the whole material realm as well as the spiritual realm. And so his salvation includes our souls as well as our bodies. It is a complete salvation. And you need to understand, this is a huge part of the uniqueness of the Christian faith. No other religion or worldview even attempts to promise something like this. At best, they can make a, a promise of a partial salvation, but not the full and total redemption that you get promised in the gospel. Because of his resurrection, Jesus is clearly Lord of Lords, King of Kings, ruler of rulers. He is the supreme lawgiver and supreme governor of all things. In him, all things, material and spiritual, are held together. His lordship as the risen one extends over everything. 
And so indeed, we can really say the risen Christ is the key to creation, to its meaning, its purpose, its redemption. The risen Christ is the key to history. He unlocks the meaning of history and the goal of history in his bodily resurrection. The resurrection means Christ has won the victory over sin, death, and Satan. And this victory is what gives us joy and confidence as Christians. No, life is not always easy. But because Christ is king, life is always good. We can say life is always good because we know how the story will end. Evil is real. Our enemies are numerous and powerful, but the resurrection means we can live fearlessly. Because even death, Satan's greatest weapon, cannot truly harm us. Our future is safe and secure because of the risen Christ. You know, we all like to cite Romans 8:28. God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But that verse is only true because of the resurrection. There is no happy ending where everything bad serves your good unless there is a resurrection. You're living in a tragedy and not a comedy if there is no resurrection. Take the resurrection away and all is lost. All hope, all victory, all salvation, all promises. Take the resurrection away and sin wins and death reigns and Satan is the god of this world even now. Take the resurrection away and there is no certainty that God will turn our suffering into glory. Everything depends on this. Everything depends on the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have the Bible's most extended explanation and defense of the resurrection. Both Jesus' resurrection in the past and our promised resurrection in the future, Jesus' bodily resurrection the third day after his crucifixion, and our future resurrection at the last day. And what I want to do for us this morning is pull out four key truths about the resurrection, four key truths about the resurrection from this chapter. The resurrection means these four things are true. First, salvation is accomplished. Second, suffering will be reversed. Third, success is secured. And fourth, significance is established. Those four things. This is what the resurrection means. Salvation accomplished, suffering reversed, success secured, and significance established. So let's go through these. First, the resurrection means salvation has been accomplished. Paul states this plainly in verses 17 to 18. He says, if Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins, and those also who have fallen asleep have perished. If there is no resurrection, you're still in your sins. Obviously, that means if there is a resurrection, we are not in our sins anymore. For Paul, the resurrection is the key pivot in our redemption because without it, sin reigns right now. And when we die, death reigns forever, and that's it. So Paul sees the resurrection of Jesus as the core of our salvation. Obviously, everything Jesus did in his earthly life matters to our salvation, not just his resurrection. His birth into the world as the incarnate one, you could say that's really the foundation of it all. Jesus had to obey the law perfectly throughout his life so he could be the spotless lamb of God who sacrifices for his people, only a sinless substitute can make an effective sacrifice for sinners, so he had to obey the law at every point throughout his life. 
Obviously, his death on the cross is crucial, literally. It is the crux of, of, of everything. On the cross, Jesus bears the weight of our sin and endures the curse that we deserve. He takes the punishment. He takes the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. And so we can say, a sinful Christ could never save sinners. An uncrucified Christ cannot save sinners. But Paul goes one step further here and tells us a dead Christ cannot save us either. A dead Christ, a Christ who stays in the tomb, cannot rescue us either. If Christ is not raised, we are still in our sins. Why? Why isn't his perfect life of obedience and his death on the cross, why wouldn't that be enough? Why does Paul say this? Well, there are a lot of ways we might answer that question. Perhaps if Jesus stayed dead, it would mean that he really was a sinner like everyone else. And so his death on the cross was no more special than the other two guys who got nailed to crosses at the same time. Maybe that's what Paul means. Or perhaps it's because a dead Christ is not alive to intercede for us as our great high priest. He's not seated at the Father's right hand to pour out his Holy Spirit. Now, all of that's true, of course, but I think Paul indicates in verse 17 what he really means, what he's getting at. The point is this, the resurrection itself is the grand saving event. The resurrection itself is what brings about our salvation. Think about how Paul puts it at the end of Romans chapter 4, Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and raised for our justification. That is, he was lifted up, he was delivered up, he was nailed to the cross because of our offenses, and he was raised up in his resurrection on the third day for our justification. This is what Paul's saying there, and it really fits with 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus suffered and died for our offenses on the cross. He underwent our condemnation. But because he was a righteous man, a just man, death therefore had no claim on him and could not hold him. And so God reversed Pilate's decree of condemnation and justified him in raising him from the dead. There was an earthly decree of condemnation, an earthly verdict of condemnation against Jesus, in, and that's what led to his crucifixion. That, that verdict was manifested in his crucifixion. But in his resurrection, God has overturned the verdict of the earthly courts with his own heavenly verdict, a verdict coming from the heavenly court that justifies and vindicates Jesus. In his resurrection, Jesus is justified. He is vindicated. And so we who are united to him share in that justification. We share in that vindication. See, Paul very much understands the resurrection as a legal or judicial event. It is the enactment of a verdict. The crucifixion is the enactment of a verdict, a verdict of condemnation, condemnation of our sin. But the resurrection is a judicial verdict that overturns that earlier verdict, that justifies Jesus, who had been condemned in these earthly courts. The, the resurrection is the verdict that vindicates Jesus. Think of the resurrection this way. It is Jesus' own justification. That's what the resurrection means. That's why we are no longer in our sins. He is justified, and because we are united to him by faith, we now share in his justified status. 
See, a, a dead Christ is an unjustified Christ, and an unjustified Christ cannot justify us. For us to be justified, Jesus has to be justified. But because he has been justified, he can now share his status as the justified one with his people. You see this later in 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul contrasts the two Adams. Paul does this a lot. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, he does this. In Romans 5, he does this. There is the two Adam contrast. The first Adam came from the dust of the ground. The second Adam came from the dust of the grave. The first Adam brought death into the world by his sinful act. The second Adam brought new life into the world by his glorious resurrection. The first Adam drags us down to hell. The second Adam carries us up to heaven and to the new creation. All that the first Adam lost has been regained, and then some, by the second Adam's resurrection. All we lost in Adam, all we could have gained through Adam had he been obedient, we now have in the risen and glorified Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the new Adam. The church is his bride, the new Eve. And so he shares all he has with us, including his righteous status, including his status as the righteous one. And that's why for the Apostle Paul, the resurrection really is an all or nothing event. If it happened, then our whole salvation is secure. Our, our whole salvation has been accomplished and secured because our salvation is found in the risen Christ. He is our salvation, the risen Christ. But if it didn't happen, then all is lost. And the Christian faith is not just a terrible error. It is a deadly and stupid delusion. For Paul, there is no middle ground. There is no third way. It happened or it didn't, and everything depends on that. Now, as I said earlier, just a moment ago, the resurrection is a legal event. It is a judicial event. It is averted. It is Christ's justification, and thus it becomes the basis of our justification since we are in him, since we are united to him. But you need to understand this, too, and this is why the resurrection is everything for Paul. The resurrection is also a transformative event. The resurrection holds together the legal, the judicial on the one hand, and the, the transformative, the transformational on the other hand. And of course, you see this in Jesus himself. In his resurrection, Jesus' body is clearly transformed and glorified. He has the same body he had before, but it's, it's new, it's different, it's been transformed. The resurrection, you could say, really is the rebooting of the human race. The human race crashed in Adam, and there's a reboot in, in Jesus. He is Adam 2.0. And so he is the beginning of a new human race, and thus the beginning of a new creation. And this is why when Paul describes the new life that we have received as believers, this new life that we now live out, this transformational life, this new way of living, he always describes it in terms of resurrection. So in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, we have been raised with him through faith. We've been resurrected even now into a new kind of life. In Ephesians 2, he says, we who were dead in sins and trespasses have been made alive together in Christ. That when God raised him up and gave him new life, now we share in that new life. We share in that resurrection life. We're no longer dead in our sins. We're alive in Christ. In Romans 6, he says, we have died with Christ and now have been raised to walk in newness of life with him. 
Paul affirms again and again and again, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is already at work in us. His resurrection life is already at work in us. We already in some way share in that resurrection life. You don't await the last day to enter into resurrection life already. You've been made alive together with Christ Jesus. And so again, we can say if Christ is not raised, we are still in our sins and we have no new life because there is no new life. But because Christ has been raised, we are justified and reborn, vindicated and transformed. And that's why we can say really and truly the resurrection is the gospel. The resurrection is the core of our salvation. The only place we can seek and find salvation is in the risen Christ. He alone can deliver us from sin, from its judicial condemnation, and from its enslaving power. That's what his resurrection does. And so thanks be to God, Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen indeed. That is our hope. That is our salvation. That is our everything. But turn to the second truth here. Uh, that I want us to see, suffering and what the resurrection does to our suffering. The resurrection means suffering is reversed. It means suffering is reassessed. The resurrection gives us a whole new perspective on suffering. We see this in the story of Jesus himself. Think about this. Between the time of Jesus' crucifixion and before his resurrection, what happened? What was that like for his disciples? After Jesus was crucified, all of the disciples were despondent. They were all despairing. They were without hope. The Apostle Paul might, might have said of them, they were without hope and without God in the world. They were in this despairing situation. The cross had shattered their dreams. The death of Jesus was the death of their faith. The, the crucifixion in their mind, in their eyes, proved this is just another wannabe Messiah who has failed. But when Jesus rose from the dead, when they encountered the risen Christ, when they saw him with their own eyes, when they, when they saw him eat and, 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 and be in their presence, when they touched him and even the, the places where the nails had scarred his body, when they came to realize this is no ghost, this is no hallucination, this is a resurrection. Jesus is really back from the grave. What happened? What did they have to do? They had to revise their understanding of what happened on the cross. They had to change their whole view of Jesus' suffering. Before the resurrection, it looked like Jesus had died as a helpless victim, overcome by the Jewish and Gentile powers that conspired against him. It looked like his suffering was pointless. After the resurrection, they had to radically reassess what Jesus' suffering on the cross really meant. The resurrection transformed how they viewed his suffering on the cross. They, they, they realized, no, that was not pointless suffering. That was the most meaningful suffering that has taken place in the whole history of the world. Looked at in the light of the resurrection, the cross came to be seen not as a meaningless tragedy, but as suffering with a purpose. Suffering that's part of a plan, suffering that accomplishes something. In fact, in light of the resurrection, they had to reassess the cross in this way too. They, they came to see that his suffering was no longer a manifestation of weakness and defeat, but rather of strength and victory. See, the resurrection transformed the way they looked 
at the cross. The resurrection reversed their understanding of the cross. It changed the way they looked at Jesus' suffering. And understand this. The resurrection does the same with our suffering. With the daily crosses we're all called to bear. Just as the resurrection transformed the way they looked at Jesus' suffering, the resurrection, the promise of resurrection, can transform the way you look at your own suffering. Without the hope of resurrection, suffering becomes unbearable. We can't see any point in it. What purpose could it possibly serve? The pain serves no purpose. Without the resurrection, preserving our own peace, comfort, and personal affluence become paramount. We do all we can to avoid suffering. Suffering is the one thing we must avoid at all cost. But with the resurrection, what happens? When you look at your life in light of the resurrection, what happens? Now you can endure suffering with grace and with poise, and you can actually choose suffering for the sake of being obedient, for the sake of love. You can actually choose suffering for the sake of others and for the sake of God's kingdom. The resurrection makes all the suffering make sense. It gives it a point. It gives it a purpose. The resurrection puts our daily sufferings in a whole new light. Whether you're thinking of annoyances that you endure at home or at work or a difficult bodily ailment, some kind of sickness or bodily weakness or financial turmoil, or, of course, the ultimate suffering of martyrdom, the resurrection puts all of it in a new light and makes it meaningful. The resurrection gives us a new perspective on the pains of life. It transforms our understanding of suffering. It reverses our understanding of suffering. This is certainly true for the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians verses 14, chapter 15, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty and your faith is empty and he says, we have been found to be false witnesses. He says in verse 19, if Christ is not raised, then we, that is we apostles, are of all men most to be pitied. If Christ is not risen, why are the apostles most to be pitied? Not just because they have believed a lie, but because they have suffered for a lie. Think of all the apostles went through to preach the resurrection of Jesus all of that suffering, it's all wasted. All of that suffering is wasted. It was all for nothing if Jesus has not been raised. Think of all the Apostle Paul endured for the sake of preaching Christ's resurrection. The beatings, the imprisonments, the shipwrecks, a snake bite, stonings, being left for dead. He faced constant suffering. What made it all worthwhile? The promise of resurrection. We might say the fact of resurrection, the fact of Christ's resurrection in the past, and the promise of our future resurrection. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the sufferings of the present moment are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And when will that glory be revealed in us? Well, of course, in the resurrection. In fact, Paul says when we are resurrected, when we are resurrected and glorified at the last day, the whole creation under our rule will be resurrected and glorified as well. Man is the captain of creation. What happens to man happens to the creation. When man is resurrected and glorified, the whole creation is going to be resurrected as well. 
And so in Romans 8, Paul says the creation eagerly awaits our resurrection because then it will be delivered from bondage, from bondage to decay and corruption, the effects of our sin on the world around us. And so Paul says right now the whole creation sighs or groans until this resurrected world is born. That sighing, that groaning, that's what the fall is all about. But that sighing and that groaning will give way to shouts of joy in the end. Jesus sighed and groaned on the cross. We sigh and groan every day because of the crosses we're called to carry. And Paul says even the lower creation sighs and groans awaiting resurrection glory. A lot of you know my dog, Chloe. A lot of you have met Chloe. Uh, Chloe's getting pretty old now. And I've noticed there are lots of times now when, when she goes to lay down, after she lays down, she lets out a long sigh, kind of a, a, a groan. Okay? That is a Romans 8 sigh. That is a Romans 8 groan. You ever heard an old dog sigh or groan? That's a Romans 8 groaning for resurrection glory. That's what Paul is talking about. Our faithful suffering in the present moment in some way prepares for and paves the way for resurrection glory. And when that resurrection glory arrives, those groans of pain will turn to shouts of joy. And even the lower creation under our rule will rejoice with us in this glorious resurrection, this rebirth of the cosmos that's going to take place at the last day. You need to understand, your suffering is not for nothing. You don't have hope in Christ for this life only, but for the life to come, for the glory that is to come. The resurrection transforms how we look at our suffering. It reverses the meaning of suffering. It gives meaning to our suffering. Well, third, the resurrection means success is secured. And here my point is not your personal success. There's no health, wealth, and prosperity gospel bound up in this. But this is what I mean. What do I mean when I say success is secured? I mean the success of Jesus as the new Adam and the success of his bride, the church, and the success of the gospel mission Christ has given to us. That success is guaranteed by the resurrection. I don't know how it can be, but some Christians manage to be pessimists about the future of the church. Some Christians are pessimists about the future of the church. And their view of looking at what is to come is so dominated by current events in their little corner of the world, that's all they can think about. And that becomes the lens through which they see everything. And it gives them this jaundiced, pessimistic view of where history is headed. How can Christians be pessimists about the future of the church? How can Christians be pessimists about the future of the church? Think about what's already happened. How the church has grown from a mere 12 disciples to over 2 billion in a mere 2,000 years. We've gone from 12 to 2 billion in a mere 2,000 years. The Christian faith is right now, at this very moment, the fastest growing religion in the world. 
How can Christians be pessimists? Think about this. In the year 1900, there were 9 million Christians in Africa. Today, there are 400 million. In just 120 years, it's gone from 9 million to 400 million. In China, in 1949, there were 4 million Christians in China. Today, there are 100 million Christians in China. From 1949 to today, it's gone from 4 million to 100 million. The future, and by this I don't just mean the last day when Jesus returns, I mean everything between today and the last day. The future is bright. The future is bright for the church, for the people of God. Stop reading the headlines and start reading your Bible. Stop listening to cable news and start listening to the good news, the gospel, the promises of God. Paul tells us the way history is going to go in this chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28, building off of Psalm 110, he tells us how history is going to go, the trajectory of history. He tells us Jesus will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. He'll destroy the last enemy, death, at the last day, obviously when he returns and the resurrection of all takes place. But in the meantime, what is he doing? In the meantime, he is at work subjecting all things to himself which means he is multiplying disciples and taking dominion over the nations. Why? So that the last day he can hand over a completed kingdom to his father. That's what he's doing. He's multiplying disciples, he's taking dominion over the nations, so at the last day he can hand over a completed kingdom to his father. He's going to complete the dominion mandate of Genesis 1 and the great commission of Matthew chapter 28. That's what Jesus is doing in history. He's fulfilling the, the, the dominion mandate of Genesis 1 and the great commission of Matthew 28. And that's why you should want to evangelize. This is why you should want to share the gospel with everyone you meet. This is why you should want to proclaim the message of Christ's death and resurrection to everybody, everywhere. You know how when a team wins a championship, the fans of that team like to announce it. They like to tell everybody about it. My team won the championship. We are the champions. Well, that's really what evangelism is. That's what evangelism is all about. We are announcing the great victory that Jesus has won. We are announcing that Jesus is the champion of champions, that he is the victor of victors. We are announcing that Jesus has triumphed. We want the world to know who has won, who is winning, and who will win. That's what evangelism is all about. It's announcing the victory of Jesus. If the church went from 12 to 2 billion in 2,000 years, what can we do in another 2,000 years? What can we do in 10,000 years or 40,000 years? The resurrection means Christ will succeed in his global mission through the church. Success is secured. And finally, the resurrection means significance is guaranteed. Significance is guaranteed. See, here's the basic human problem, the basic human dilemma when you boil it down. All of our other problems, all our other fears, all our other struggles and anxieties and, and, and everything that afflicts us emotionally, mentally, spiritually, it really all comes down to this. We want our lives to count. We want our lives to have meaning, to have eternal value. You know how in 
pop songs, in, in, in rock songs, when they talk about love between a man and a woman, they want to make it last forever. That's always the goal, to be a part of something, some love that will last for all eternity. Why bother doing anything if it's all going to burn up in the heat death of the universe someday? Why bother doing anything if none of it has any meaning? If death wipes out everything, then everything is meaningless. If death gets the last word in the history of the universe, then it was all meaningless all along. None of it meant anything. If death wins then death wins and that's it. There is no meaning. If death plays the ultimate trump card at the end, then that's it. And Paul acknowledges that in this chapter. If there is no resurrection, all your labor is in vain. Your love, your service, your life, it is all in vain. If there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, your life counts for nothing. You need to to recognize that. You need to see that. But it's really interesting to me, when Paul gets to the end of this really lengthy chapter on the resurrection, what does he say? What is the the grand application he makes at the end of this chapter? What is his closing exhortation? Well, I read it for us in verse 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The labors of the Christian, Paul says, are not in vain because in the resurrection, not only will you be raised to live in God's new creation forever, but the fruits of your labors will be raised too and they will be brought as treasure into this glorious new Jerusalem. He will establish the works of your hands forever. That's bound up in the promise of resurrection as well. You and your labors really can't be separated. You and the things you produce or accomplish or contribute to. And so when Jesus brings you into his final new creation, he's got to bring all of your work, all of your labors, all that your life contributed to, it will come into the new Jerusalem as well. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon wonders aloud if death makes life meaningless. What good is wisdom, Solomon asks, if the wise man and the fool both die? If the wise man and the fool are going to end up next to each other in the cemetery and that's it, then what difference does your wisdom make? Why be wise instead of a fool if both the wise man and the fool are going to die? And the reality is, if there is no resurrection, wisdom and folly, love and hate, kindness and cruelty all collapse into the same Thing. There is no difference because there is no meaning. If there is no resurrection and death is the end, there is no difference. I'll tell you, a secular writer that saw this really well is Albert Camus. If you ever read any of Camus' writings, Camus said, death is philosophy's only problem. He understood it all comes down to this. It all comes down to death. Either there is an answer to death or not. Now, Camus had no solution to the problem of death. He did not think there was a solution to the problem of death. And so he sought to embrace nihilism. And that's what you see in his novels, this nihilistic worldview. If death is the end, nothing matters. Camus saw that just as clearly as the Apostle Paul or Solomon. Think about it this way. For the last few years, our nation has heard the cry, Black Lives Matter. But what would Camus say to that? Camus would ask, why? 
Why do black lives matter? Why do any lives matter? Why does anything at all matter? Are we just kidding ourselves? If death is the end, no lives matter. If death is the end, nothing at all matters. But death is not the end. The answer to the problem of death has been found. The answer to the problem of death is the empty tomb. It is the risen Christ. He has solved the riddle of death. He has overcome death for us. And that is what establishes significance for us for all eternity. Again, think about it this way. Either the tomb was empty of Jesus' body or life is empty of meaning. It is one or the other. Which will you choose? The empty tomb or an empty life? Those are the only alternatives. It is Christ or chaos. It is the risen Christ or utter meaninglessness. Those are your only options. Those are the only valid choices on the table. And the good news we have to proclaim is, yes, Christ is risen. And that is what gives all we do significance. Woody Allen once wrote, the trick to writing a good story is to start at the ending, get a good strong ending and work backwards. Now, I don't think we usually ought to be taking advice from Woody Allen. <laughs> but in this case, I think he's right. And he's right because it is always the ending that determines what everything before the ending means. If the ending has no meaning, then nothing before it can have meaning either. You don't know if the story you are in is a tragedy or a comedy until you get to the ending. If the story ends in death, it is a tragedy. There's no hope, there's no meaning, there's nothing. But if the story ends with resurrection, it is a comedy. And it will end with joy and laughter and everything done in history will have eternal significance. Everything will be made beautiful in that day. And that is our hope. And that means that in the here and now, all of life matters. All lives matter. Everything we do matters. It all matters because Jesus is the risen Lord. And he's coming again to bring about a resurrection of all at the last day. But what this means is the resurrection has implications for all of life. It has implications for your marriage and your family. The resurrection has implications for politics and economics and business and education and the arts and music and sports. And the whole Christian life, you could really say the whole Christian project is working out the implications of the resurrection in the here and now. Our whole worldview flows out of the resurrection. The resurrection is our salvation and it is our reason for living. It assures us of victory and it makes life meaningful. And so we really can say, echoing the words of the Apostle Paul, the resurrection changes everything. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.